What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 12 of season 2 of So What? It's me, Isabella Rosner, hyped to discuss my favorite thing, historic needlework. Today's episode is an interview, and I, like, truly cannot express how excited I am about it. I had the opportunity to interview my favorite living artist, that's crazy, and also the curator who has done so much to make her work so well known. Oh my god, what the heck, I'm freaking out. Making this podcast has really been such a joy, and this moment is, to be honest, my personal and professional peak. Holy moly. The interview this week is with artist Bisa Butler and curator Erica Warren. A dream come true! Ah, my god. Bisa Butler is a textile artist known for her bright, vibrant, quilted portraits that celebrate black life. She uses a variety of colors and fabrics, including kente cloth and African wax printed cloth, to create massive, multi-layered quilts that are hung on the wall like unframed canvases. Her work has been exhibited at the Smithsonian Museum of American History, the Epcot Center, and the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Her first solo exhibition, Bisa Butler Portraits, is up now at the Art Institute of Chicago and was co-curated by Michelle Ouija and Erica Warren. Erica Warren is Associate Curator of Textiles at the Art Institute of Chicago. Among her research interests are the City of Chicago's role in the Good Design exhibitions and the unbounded material practices of contemporary artists working with textiles. She's worked on many exhibitions, including Weaving Beyond the Bauhaus, Super Slash Natural, Textiles of the Andes, and Music and Movement, Rhythm in Textile Design. I was lucky enough to be put in touch with Bisa and Erica via Melinda Watt, one of the wonderful curators I interviewed last episode. Now, let me talk a bit more about Bisa's exhibition, Bisa Butler Portraits, which is up now at the Art Institute of Chicago. It was co-curated and organized by Michelle Ouija of the Katona Museum of Art in Katona, New York, and Erica Warren of the Art Institute. The exhibition is open now and is up until the 6th of September 2021. It includes over 20 of Bisa's quilted portraits alongside masterworks like Romar Bearden's collages and Gordon Parks's photographs. Accompanying the exhibition is a beautiful, and when I say beautiful, oh my god do I mean it, it is so pretty! Ah, it's amazing. A beautiful catalog with the most stunning images and great essays. And I would wholeheartedly recommend buying a copy because it is so excellent. Really, I can't say that enough. And it gives me a glimpse of the exhibit, even though I won't be able to see the show because of COVID travel restrictions. So if you can't get to Chicago, I would recommend getting the catalog so you can get a little bit of the exhibition feel for yourself because hot damn. You can tell I am really out here screaming about it. I can't get over it. As you can tell, I'm very excited to interview Bisa and Erica together so we can all learn more about the collaboration between textile artist and textile curator. Now, before I begin the interview, I gotta do my classic social media spiel. Images of what we discussed today are on the So What social media pages at So What Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And they're also on our website at sowhatpodcast.com. That's S-E-W-W-H-A-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. 
I will also link to more information about BISA, Erica, the Art Institute exhibition, and the catalog on all of those pages. So go check that out and follow and get into it. Now, without further ado, here's the interview. Hello, we are here. So Bisa, what was your path to becoming a textile artist who tells the story of African-American life? And this is a big question, perhaps. Can you tell me a bit more about your artistic process? My path to becoming a textile artist really started at home. My mother and my grandmother, like a lot of women in the like 70s style women, um, had a sewing room. And so they had regular jobs. My mom was a French teacher, but she was always sewing uh, fashionable clothing, like how to wear Christian Dior without Christian Dior money. And she inherited that from my grandmother. And I loved art. I was a super creative kid. So I'm in school for art. I went to Howard University. And those two things just like traditional art programs, especially in the 90s, um, unless you were at a school that had a really strong fibers, like if you had a fibers faculty or some sort of person who pushed that, that was not a part of the standard. You know, when you went into art school, you had to have drawing. You either were majoring in drawing, painting, sculpture, mixed media. And I think they were starting to get into um, some students who wanted to do like a performance art, sort of like a multi-layered. But there was no fibers content at Howard University. So I had one particular professor, Al Smith, he looked at me one day and I was wearing all kinds of funky prints that I had sewn myself. And he was like, why are you not combining your clothing with your artwork? Like you're I told him I was struggling. He didn't say that, but I felt my paintings were very like, whatever the professor asked for, you know, paint a still life there. I had my boring still life, paint a landscape. There was a landscape or paint the model in the room. I painted very realistically, whatever the model looked like, like, I mean, like photo realistically. Mm. So I couldn't figure out where was me in that equation besides following direction. And I could copy anybody. I loved Lois Jones, Lois Maya Jones. I, I loved the way she had these, African symbolism with her artwork. And so she had this sort of abstract um, um, African sculptures who um, certain features might be exaggerated for a particular meaning. And then she was combining that with her like education that she got in Paris. And, but I didn't know how to synthesize those things into not copying Lois Jones and not copying um, whoever we were looking at. We looked at Jacob Lawrence all the time, Palmer Hayden, um, Alma Thomas, William H. Johnson. I knew all these names and people, but didn't know who I was. And it was only until I started adding in fabric that I was able to ex express my feeling towards art. What is it that I wanna say? One of my friends was trying to assist me at one point. I remember her putting her head down and she was like, She's like, your process. She was like, I just had to get that out. Okay, ask, tell me what she needed to do. <laughs> she just had to scream because I'm used to doing it. But, but I think I start out like a lot of artists though. I'm, I use photographic references. I love vintage photography. Um, I grew up like a child of the seventies. We had black and white TV. And so like 
I can't recall, it was something like 1978, all of a sudden all the TVs were color. Like I kind of remember that transition. So I grew up looking at black and white TV and thinking nothing was wrong with that. They didn't look gray to me. I knew they weren't, you know, like I knew Elvis's skin was not like gray and black. You automatically mm -hmm. replace the colors. So when I look at black and white images, it helps me replace the colors with what I imagine them to be. And I create a sketch from that image and I'm drawn to images of black people, African-American people, because I grew up looking at my grandmother's photos. So I didn't initially set out, like I'm only going to create artwork of black people, but I was really just creating images of my grandmother's people. Her, her aunt, she had an aunt, it was a Victorian photo woman. She had like the high neck blouse yeah. and the mutton sleeves and the tiny, tiny corseted waist and these beautiful lace gloves. And this was taken in New Orleans sometime, who knows, maybe 1900 or something, or maybe it was like 18 something. I really don't know. And I said, grandma, well, who's that? And she said, oh, that's Mammy Round Yonder. And I was a Northern child. I grew up in New Jersey. My father's from Ghana. So I don't call anybody Mammy. So I didn't really get that her name wasn't actually Mammy. And we also don't say somebody's round yonder. So I used to say it all together, Mammy round yonder, like that's a name. Not realizing until I was much older that she just meant that was an auntie who lived around the corner. <laughs> I would also so. have no idea. <laughs> Right. Mammy Round Yonder was the name. And then as I got older and I started putting those things together, realizing that uh, my grandmother didn't remember that woman's name because she was a little girl and called her Mammy Round Yonder. And that's what we called her. So that curiosity meant that I wanted to recapture who was Mammy Round Yonder. I make a sketch on paper that that paper becomes my pattern and I cut out the shapes and fabric. And then I just start layering from there. So like all the base, are just big chunks. Like I might just have like one bright orange arm. And then everything else on top of that is organically thought out. Me looking at the photo and looking at how do I want to translate the light tones. If I was doing my hand, like, you know, how am I going to translate the little knobby bone on my wrist? or like my tendons, what color do I want to use for that? And so that can be, if, if the base is orange, um, it's funny, like it's bright outside today. So like my color choices will be organic too. It depends on how I'm feeling or how I'm feeling about the subject himself. Am I trying to make it lively and exciting or do I want to make this person more somber? So I'm thinking more about mood and not really about like what color are they, what skin tone. Mm -hmm. are they what is the mood and so that process can take me about two weeks when I calculate it's about like 100 to 200 hours on a person wow. like an, an eye alone I was working on an eye last night it was well beyond though because I was like really trying to get detailed but it must have taken me about six hours to sort and cut because the pieces like you know if I, if you say the eye is this big let's say it's a, a big piece. If the eye is that big, then every part on top, I mean, even the lashes, it's just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. As I'm cutting, cutting it, it's layered, but the fabric is so thin itself. It's not really thick. It's really light. Mm -hmm. 
I'm using silk and cotton and lace. Um, last night I was using some black lace for eyelashes. But when you cut things really small, sometimes they just deconstruct altogether. Mm. I just looked down in my hand. I just have like threads. So I'm like, mm, okay, <laughs> lace is not working. Let me move to mm. something with a tighter weft. Um, and sometimes if I, like, it depends if I'm insistent on that lace, I'll put like a little stabilizer on the back of it because I just really want lace for that moment. And after that is all pieced together, I have like a thousand pins and little types of glue, but I don't do any, like some quilts have a quilt top mm. and then they put the batting and then the backing. My quilt top is just pinned. It's not sewn together. Whoa, then I put the okay. batting and the backing. I load everything on my long arm machine and just stitch it through like the sandwich from the start. I used to sew, I used to stitch the quilt top separately on a machine, a regular table machine. And then moved to the um, long arm machine. I was like, why am I sewing this thing twice? Like, mm. that, that doesn't even, because it's not like I'm putting squares together. The whole image is already put together. So I'm like, I'm going to stitch it all at once. And so I figured out that um, even sewing a quilt top like that, it changes the way the fabric stretches. So it's better for me to make it a unified piece all together from the very beginning. Um, and then after it's stitched, that's it. Done. That is amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> so Erica, how did you become interested in textiles and what led you to become a curator? So I really became interested in textiles through a sort of lens of decorative arts and design and um, kind of thinking in a kind of holistic way. So I was you know, working on my PhD many moons ago. Mm. <laughs> and I, uh, my advisor had suggested a kind of decorative arts topic of some sort. And uh, I did some, you know, exploratory research and uh, settled on the work of the Norwegian artist Gerhard Minta, who. Yes. Uh, oh, do you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so he's, he's uh, not super well-known, mm -hmm. but um, he was a, a landscape painter. And then um, towards the end of the 1880s, uh, he started to paint these watercolors, which were then used as cartoons um, for tapestries. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a really kind of interesting body of scholarship about his work and its participation in nationalism and internationalism in this moment in the late uh, 19th century and really the turn of the century as well. And so thinking about you know, his, his work and his tapestries and really his broader engagement with the decorative arts um, for my dissertation, this was you know, the, the kind of crux of it and thinking about this kind of, you know, narrative of modernity, um, that really pushed me towards textiles. 
And um, in terms of becoming a curator, I think uh, I was very fortunate to have um, a curatorial internship at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And so I had really um, strong mentors there and um, had a lot of you know, exciting opportunities to work um, with the collection and on kind of installations and just get like a little bit of insight into kind of the day to day. And uh, that really set me um, further on my path. So I had a curatorial fellowship at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and also um, worked there as a research assistant. Um, and through my work um, with the um, American Art Department as, as a research assistant, I became more familiar with kind of more contemporary um, textile-based practices, um, particularly like the work of Sheila Hicks. And then that really um, kind of, you know, made me want to focus even more um, on the kind of like realm of textiles. Love that. And that leads so well into the next question because you just mentioned contemporary textile practices. Speaking of textile practices and their, you know, what's happening now, your collaboration, Dream Team, I think, I hope, I'm, I mean, mostly I say that because I'm really obsessed with both of you in a nice, friendly way. So I would love to know more about how Bisa's exhibition, the Bisa Butler Portraits exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago came about. And what has the collaboration between artist and curator been like? So really this was um, definitely a collaboration between myself and Visa, but also so, so many other parties. And um, the project really was initiated when uh, Michelle Ouija, who was um, then the curator at the Katona Museum of Art reached out um, about borrowing the safety patrol, which we were in the process of acquiring. And she uh, connected with um, Linda Watt, the chair of my department, who she knew um, from uh, both of their tenures at the Met, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And, um, you know, this really kind of was an opportunity. Michelle was just, you know, beginning to work on the exhibition. And so we decided that this was a great opportunity to co-organize. And that quickly um, led to uh, planning a trip um, to just see Bisa in her studio in New Jersey. And maybe Bisa wants to take, take it up a little bit here and I can chime in again later. Yeah, I, that's so funny that I couldn't remember. That's kind of like, how did the, in, who introduced the idea of the joint exhibit between starting in Katona and then moving to the Art Institute. Because I feel like by the time you all visited me, I think it was already decided, right? Am I right about that, Erica? Yes, yeah, we had yeah. already kind of agreed that, you know, yeah. yes, like Chicago wants to do this and Katona said, that sounds great. Yeah. And then um, we had we had touched base with Claire, Claire Oliver. Um, right. I think we hadn't really, gone over all of the details with you yet and so that's right. a key step. I remember Claire Oliver calling me or maybe we were together and she was just like yeah the Art Institute wants to do a solo exhibit but I remember her saying it like kind of matter of fact not like oh this is something that's going to change your life <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah yes. by the way oh my this God, is I'm happening 
you're going to have a two a two museum solo exhibit for my first solo exhibits at all and i mean i i had one solo gallery exhibit before that experience so it wasn't like i had been in plenty of group exhibits and group exhibits at museums but smaller museums but the art institute of chicago that that place yeah so that that was pretty cool and then working with erica from the start was well as you could see she's very down to earth but she's extremely knowledgeable and and very modest <laughs> erica you're so modest about your your accomplishments because um she is an expert at curation you know that's one thing for me to make art but seeing her plans for the exhibit and and then being in that space is just you really see like how much your my art is enhanced by working with people who believe in what I'm doing and think that it's important and putting it organizing it in ways that make everybody be able to understand the work. And so that 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 has been like remarkable, both Erica and Michelle Ouija, like as far as they're working with curators who respect you and listen to you, like little things like um, my grandmother's name was Violet. So like Erica and her team at the Art Institute, they were coming up with what color the walls should be for the exhibit. And so they were just showing me the samples and they just bust out with all this violet. They were all hues of violet. And it was not like, I think I said I liked blue. I mean, they did ask like, what colors do you like, but that they lean towards the purples. It's just um, being really intuitive about how to best show off what they're doing in the museum as put, putting the work in a historical context. And then let me not skip over the addition of all these masterworks um, they put in. Um, I think Erica, I think you guys, the way you say things to me, I need like trumpets. Erica announces that. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, we're going to get some Gordon Parks pieces in the show and some Romare Bearden's and, you know, plural on these things. <laughs> and and to me, I'm like, wait, what, 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 what? Like these people are my little idols of art that I've been looking at forever. So to be able to have my artwork next to Gordon Park's photography in this like violet shaded gallery setting lets me know what it is to um, work with an institution and individuals who really are so really truly listening to you and supporting what you're doing. I love that. That is so amazing. That's the dream. Congratulations yeah. to you both yeah. and everybody that was involved. Bisa, what is your favorite work of your own, if it is possible to pick just one? And Erica, what is your favorite work of Bisa's, if it is possible <laughs> to pick just one? If it's not, just list if you want to. I'm here. I'm ready. <laughs> For me, it's easy because I'm always into the, the thing that I'm working on at the time. That it's like that's my favorite. That's where my all my energy is going right now. I I did a piece of um, a young photographer. I don't want to call him just a photographer. He's a photographer, stylist. Um, he worked on Beyonce's Black is King. Oh yes, so 
he's South African, his name is Trevor Sturman, and I did a portrait of him. And so I'm actually getting ready to sew that any day now. So that's like my fave piece right now. Plus he's wearing these really amazing Nikes that I was able to like translate into fabric. And that was so much fun. I used all this neon um, brocade fabric that I got at Mood in New York. I just had a lot of fun because I try to, I like things, the fabric to connect to who the people are. So since he's like so young, I, well, to me, it's so young, but I think he's not 30 or he's close to 30. And I just wanted to use all the brightest, most exciting, like even the African print fabrics. There are some that are reprints of fabrics that are made in the 20s and the 30s. Oh, yeah. But for him, I wanted to use fabric that was of now, mm. like brand, mm. brand new designs. So that's my favorite piece right now. I'm so excited. And Erica, if you can pick just one, can you pick just one? I mean, I'm not as disciplined as Bisa, so no. <laughs> I, I can. I, that is I'll, so fair. I'll, um, I'll try to keep it to two or three, okay. but it is, very, it is a real challenge. Um, that is so fair. So I would be, I mean, uh, it would be impossible for me to not have the safety patrol be mm-hmm. one of my favorite works. Not only is it the work we acquired, but um, it also is the work that opens the exhibition. And um, for me, it really tells so many different stories um, simultaneously and offers so many different opportunities for engagement and every time I look at it too, you know, I notice new details, especially, you know, every time you look at it with someone new, Mm-hmm. they see something and maybe they see something that you've seen, but they also see something that you haven't seen. And, um, you know, for all of those reasons, it, it's, it's always going to be uh, really special. And That's so nice. In my, on my, in my list. Um, and then in terms of an, an individual portrait. I'm gonna make categories here. So. I love that. You gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> the safety patrol is the group portrait of children. Yes. And then the individual portrait, um, I would say uh, among my favorites is the equestrian. Oh yes. Oh yes. I talked about that in one of the podcast episodes. It's also a oh, favorite really? of mine. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I told you I like am a little creep, and you've been mentioned several times <laughs> on the podcast. Yes, <laughs> um, and with that work again, I, um, I think there are so many different kind of stories being told. Um, but I know I've noticed that a lot of um, like women who have been in the exhibition kind of stop at that work mm-hmm. and say, "This is my favorite." And I think that there is just something about her poise and this kind of confidence and strength that she's exuding. And this is, you know, it's, it's based on this, these, this series of photographs from the late 19th century. And we have very few details about um, the woman who was, you know, captured in those images, but, you know, Bisa's work and, and the way she's interpreted the photo, we get this kind of story of her as being this very like independent and, and strong and confident and, you know, 
well-traveled person with, with so many different stories to tell. And um, I think like seeing that is really inspiring. I, I love that piece too. I'm glad that people can connect to it because she's such a mystery. Mm-hmm. She feels so like you make her feel so alive. And I think that's one of the things that I love so much about your work is not only do you make the people's real life experiences come back to life, you also like give the viewer opportunities to understand different experiences. If that makes sense, you, you provide people, you provide the figures and the individuals in, in your work with more than one life. That's that whole thing of me wanting to know who Mammy Round Yonder was like, who, what was she like? Yeah. You know, like we see her in this Victorian dress, but she's obviously not wearing that on a daily. What did she do anyway? And just there's so many questions, so many questions. Like a black woman in that time in Louisiana, especially Creole, they had this whole other society. So what was going on there? Um it's just very interesting. I like and then so that just anytime I find old photos like that. Gordon Parks, most of his photos, I feel like he spoke to his subjects. And so there's this connection. Let's say if we're looking at one of his, he has this connection with whoever he's portraying, what he wants to say. So the voice is so strong in there that working with, I haven't actually made a quilt of one of Gordon Parks's uh, photographs before, but I got the okay from his foundation. So I'm like, so ready because I feel like he's giving me so much. Some of the other photographs that I might find, like the one with Salika Lisevsky, the equestrian, it's harder because we have like the name of the photography studio. I think it was like Magnum Studios or or something or Magnon. It might've been, it was in France. So I'm probably saying it wrong. But there's no more. That's it. Like mm-hmm. we, there's a series of three photos, and then what more about her? Her name is a clue. Thank goodness they put her name on it. Yeah. But the ones without the name is just like who? So I'm constantly looking at these little clues. I look at if it's taking me a hundred hours to do a piece, I may be staring at that photo. I'm looking at things on their faces their hands I might notice things about their hair like when I look a woman she had on an apron and then I saw that the apron was pinned not like a string so then even that's like a clue to me because I don't really know people too much who pin an apron on or a guy he had on his spectacles and I'm looking for the wire I'm looking looking and I'm realizing these these specs don't have the wire so what kind of guy you know, a black man wears spectacles like that, that you place Mm. his lifestyle. You can't just run around the city with those are going to fall off. And the fact that he has them on in the photo and he's like looking at the photographer through these specs, like you're really getting the idea of this guy. He has these specs on and he also Actually, Erica, you're getting ready to put that piece in the show. It's it's a new new addition to the exhibit. And oh he's God. wearing, it's called Africa, the Land of Hope 
and Promise for Negro Peoples of the World, which is a really long title, but that's the um, that was the headline on the newspaper that he's holding. I love so that. There's all these clues, like why that newspaper, and then you see like that newspaper was a Marcus Garvey paper, and about mm -hmm. the whole back to Africa movement. So I just like to really delve into the time. Who was this guy? He wasn't holding that paper in the original photo. I'm just saying like this man with these specs, you start thinking about what kind of person wears spectacles like that? And what is his lifestyle? It was only after I did the piece, his name was on it, Emmett Scott, on the photo and the date, I think it was 1918. So that's, I should have researched it ahead of time. I did not. He was holding a bunch of papers. So I decided to make it a newspaper. After I did the piece, I did the research. It was like on my machine. And I see that he was a former janitor who worked his way up to become a journalist and then founded his own newspaper. So he was meant to have a newspaper in his hands. And he is the type of guy who would look down his spectacles in a very disapproving manner at us and primarily I think at me for not doing the research while I was working on the piece. It worked out well for you though. It like, yes. you knew, you knew, you read, you like saw the real him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, mm, I love that. You like, you fill in the gaps in these narratives in a way that I am like obsessed with, because I think one of the reasons why I love studying needlework specifically is because often it comes with hints, right? Like sometimes it will have a name or a teacher's name or a date or a place. And it has all of these clues to yeah. find this person. And I think one of the joys of textiles and researching these things that we use all the time and that we surround ourselves with is that it's like piecing together a puzzle and all, a lot right. of the clues are there but like not quite. And I think one of the reasons why I love your work is because there are even fewer pieces of the puzzle there, but you are providing, you're adding to the puzzle mm -hmm. and you're getting us closer to the, the finished puzzle. There's no, what is, is there a better word for that? I was like, let's end this thought, end this thought nicely. Can finish puzzle. Yeah. So, oh, this yeah. is the hyping up Visa Butler corner. That work is just like so brilliant because he, you know, Emmett Scott founded a newspaper in, I believe it was like 1893 and Marcus Garvey didn't establish his newspaper until 1917. And the fact that Visa puts Garvey's newspaper in, you know, Scott's arm, like the two of them had very similar kind of philosophical ideas about, um, you know, empowerment of Black Americans um, through kind of economic means within capitalism and kind of empowering um, and supporting um, Black owned businesses and saw this as like a real way forward in a 
in a deeply segregated America for, um, you know, Black Americans to, like, find um, success and fulfillment and, um, and really, like, economic opportunities. So that connection for me, as I was kind of learning more about Scott, was just, like, mind-blowing. What are both of your favorite needleworked objects or just a single object that is not your own work? I'll just say among my favorites. So I have been been spending a lot of time thinking about kind of quilts and decorative objects that are made in the crazy, the crazy quilts. Oh, yeah. style. Oh, yes. Um, and I, uh, part of this fascination was precipitated by a parlor throw done in this fashion that entered the Art Institute's collection as a gift in 2017. And it's this very um, beautiful example that uh, the central field is entirely irregular and largely comprised of bits um, of lengths of ribbon. that have been, you know, carefully pieced together to form this kind of rectangular um, central field that then is bordered in this uh, beautiful blue velvet. And then the velvet itself has this um, really lovely floral applique that is like quite three-dimensional, particularly these wonderful hyacinths that kind of are domed. And then, you know, the piecing itself and all of these saved, you know, bits of ribbon, or maybe just, you know, someone decided I have all of this ribbon, I'm going to make this parlor throw. Yeah. Uh, but but the piecing together of it in this entirely regular fashion, and then the embroidery that goes along the, the edges and then is also used to kind of embellish some um, there are some pieces of velvet and other fabrics, silk fabrics in there as well. Um, the embroidery, the variety of stitches and mm. different kind of motifs, um, you know, anything from like a kind of suggestion of like a Japanese fan to um, just kind of a lovely floral vine. Um, it's just astonishing when you study this particular example and I mean we have a good collection in general of these types of of quilts and um, I'm really just fascinated by the discourse around them in the 19th century late 19th century and early 20th and this kind of um, idea of like crazy perhaps deriving from um, the kind of surface on a ceramic that becomes crazed and you know, mm. regular, but also this idea that like the women making them are kind of crazy and deranged or going mad in the process. And, <laughs> and just, I saw this amazing kind of cartoon of this woman and she's, she's shown, you know, in a, in a, a rocking chair making a crazy quilt and um, they're kind of poking fun at her in light of the armory exhibition of 1913. Yeah. And I just kind of feel like you're all just mad because like these women were making abstract art. Exactly. You're just jealous. You're just jealous. You're very jealous. You want to be be sat in the rocking chair. You want to be so into the (laughs) piece of ribbon. It's what you really want. 
Um, so yeah, I've been thinking a lot about those as needlework objects. And then I also think a lot about um, in kind of a more contemporary example, you know, the work of Lenore Tawney and the way mm -hmm. that she, um, for a lot of her open work tapestries, I mean, that is like needlework. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so just like seeing this kind of breadth of um, different techniques. Anyway, those are just two examples from my Love work. it. Yeah, love awesome. It. I love uh, my, my idol, Faith Sprinkled. How can I not mention any of her artworks, all of them, but she's getting ready to have this huge exhibit. I don't even know if you call it a retrospective at, at her age, I guess so, because it's like this culmination. And I saw that she had her sculptures, like doll type figures. And one of them looked like he was at least four feet high. And they were um, on her Instagram they showed like a little snapshot of this image and it looks like these two or three figures and it's a funeral. And she even has a, like a quilted, I think it's like a little, not a, it's, it's quilted, but it's a sculptural thing of a mm. 3D, like a little casket, the little person in it. And then they're like the mourners standing around it. And she's just beyond all, she is the woman. I mean, I could say Tar Beach, is, is like a beautiful piece, but there's so many and she's so provocative and black and proud and, and woman powered. And so I'm obsessed with all Faith Wrinkled, really. I don't know if there's a piece that I could say is not good. I know she does prints and painting, but I'm, I'm more partial to her quilts mm -hmm. and, and, and those, I don't wanna call them dolls but they're sculptural figures. Mm, that's a good one. I also Faith Ringgold fan club here. And yeah, just to let you know, whenever, okay. So the last time I talked about you on the podcast was an episode about um, the history of art versus craft, basically, and how mm -hmm. needlework has been devalued and needs to not be devalued. And mm -hmm. I spend some time talking about people who are doing really good work in the field of textiles and needlework now. And I pair you and Faith Ringgold. So now I feel oh, very, thank I feel you. like, got <laughs> this amazing. Like, just yeah. like, you're obviously your work is very different, but I see the through line. Like, I do think that there mm -hmm. is a lineage mm -hmm. from her work to yours. And I think that sure. it's like, it, it benefits both her work and yours to, to look at them mm -hmm. sometimes in tandem. Mm -hmm. Oh, love her. Well, that's, that's a huge honor. I just think I admire so much about her, the arc of her career and for her to still be creating. What do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Well, in my case, I feel like this whole pandemic and all of us being like sort of forced inside, I think it makes us get back to things that, um, are more self-satisfying mm. things that you can do on your own and things that you have already. So I find like a lot of people are doing things more with their hands mm -hmm. and we're also needing things to do that are self-soothing. So it's like a, it's, a, it's all kinds of things in the environment. We're all seeing how our own presence on this planet can possibly be extremely toxic or, or deadly for the planet for us. 
So like how to make things out of what we already have. So I'm thinking as we move forward that this, I think it's more than a trend though, but I think that, and I hope that people are still gonna keep making things more. Mm-hmm. Making clothing, making objects, making art. You know, as I was a high school teacher for 13 years, but we had the embroidery club, the crafts club, and then the sewing club. And so the kids are, and were making things then. So all those kids who I taught, who had those things during the pandemic, like I'm looking at their Instagrams and they're still making things. So they had an edge, a leg up, you know, Mm -hmm. for those people who had to maybe learn it by watching YouTube videos or however, but there's an interest, I think. We need the soothing and we need to make use of what's already in our environment. And we also have the desire to create. I completely agree with Issa that there are so many roles um, for needlework in in today's world. And I think we do, um, we see like popular, um, you know, interests. I definitely know several people who've taken up embroidery, myself included, um, in, you know, the past year and a half. And I think that it does have a, kind of really, you know, kind of nice role within that kind of more, you know, popular practice. Um, There's also a way in which that does connect a bit to um, uh, maybe more kind of like institutionalized narratives. If we think about, I believe it was the Rhode Island School of Design. Um, They recently did an exhibition that was all about um, visible mending. And um, nice. and and particularly kind of exploring that idea of boro, Japanese boro, and um, uh, I think it, it was Kate Urban who um, really kind of you know delved into the sort of historical practice of this, and then the kind of way that we're seeing it emerging in the contemporary moment in really uh, across like a wide swath of. Um, you know, different like peoples and, and levels of engagement and interest. So, I mean, obviously I don't put my my level of kind of, you know, practice um, in the same level as like Bisa or someone like, you know, Sophia Narrett, but I think, you know, we do see that um, there is this kind of uh, real prevalence of needlework. What a good time to make needlework or research needlework and to overall love you to work like what a time to be alive <laughs> how do people learn more about your work and is there anything you would like to promote other than slash in addition to the lovely exhibition that is happening right now mm-hmm. I think the exhibit at the art institute is the biggest thing that I have got going and I've had going in a very long time <laughs> but if you want to see more of my work you can find me at bisabutler.com and my instagram bisabutler and I'm also on the Claire Oliver Gallery website under Bisa Butler. And yeah, I've got some exciting things coming up. Everything always is like, I feel like they're password protected. (laughs) When I get the okay to announce, then I can. But um, for right now, please come see my exhibit either virtually or in real life until September at the Art Institute. Yes, perfect. Thank you. Erica, hit me with stuff 
Um, well, again, um, certainly bespeller portraits is something that um, I want to encourage people to see. Um, I have a website, so if people are interested in other projects or other research interests of mine, um, uh, they can check that out. It is um, ericawarrenphd.squarespace.com. Uh, I also maybe want to give a little bit of plug to the, um, the Scandinavian Design in the United States um, oh. exhibition, which is um, a collaboration between the Milwaukee Art Museum and the Los Angeles uh, County Museum of Art. And it was supposed to open last May. Um, and uh, I did uh, contribute a little essay to the catalog. Um, so thank you to Monica uh, Obninsky, who's now at the High Museum, and Bobby Tigerman, who's at LACMA. Um, it's a really, really good project that looks at the kind of impact of Scandinavian um, you know, design um, on uh, American designers and artists and really the kind of exchange between the two. And these ideas of like exchange and networks of relationships are really, um, something that fascinates me and, and shape the kind of my approach to just research. Thank you both so much for this opportunity. I've expressed this to both of you, how mind bogglingly exciting and what a big deal this is for me. So thank you for this opportunity. And thank you both for collaborating to make the most wonderful exhibition. Thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much. It's been, I've had so much fun chatting with both of you today. There we are, one of the most exciting interviews of my whole dang life. Please know, and I'm sure you can tell, that I was internally screaming that whole time, and I'm still screaming now. It is deeply surreal to interview my favorite living artist and the curator who has exhibited her work. Like, honestly, please pinch me. Wahaha, what the heck? What a time to be alive and to be able to watch as Bisa celebrates black life in the most beautiful, vibrant, evocative way. And all through color and stitch, ugh, textiles continue to be just the best, and I know you agree or else you wouldn't be here. Thanks for being in the textile fan club with me. And thanks to Erica and Bisa for the opportunity to interview them. I'm immensely grateful. Now go out and stitch some stories and go see Bees' exhibition at the Art Institute if you can, or at least buy the book because wow-wee, ugh, what a treat and what a joy. Bye! Thank you.